Hello, and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole. And Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. This is your destination for conversations with the finalists of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, as well as interviews with book lovers from across the province and territory. My guest for this episode pretty much needs no introduction at this point, but in case you haven't heard of her and her amazing book, I'll let her introduce herself. I'm Michelle Good. And I'm a member of the Red Crescent Cree Nation in Saskatchewan. I grew up mostly in British Columbia, uh, worked as an, ad- an activist from the time I was in my late teens, and uh, then worked with Indigenous organizations for many years, close to 30 if you include the time that I was at law school and working, and uh, went to law school uh, when I was 40, graduated at 43, practiced law for well, about 20 years, I guess, maybe a little more. (laughs) And then uh, in 2011, while I was still practicing, I went back to UBC and uh, did a master's in fine arts in creative writing. And that so far is the end of my formal education. (laughs) There's so many things I wanted to talk to Michelle about. But before we started talking about Five Little Indians, I asked her if she could be any character from a novel, which character she would be. And here's what she said. I can't remember her name, but she's a character in one of um, Four Souls. That's her name, Four Souls, in one of Louise Erdrich's novels. And um, she's quite a fearsome woman. (laughs) She's been a character that has stuck with me, definitely. And uh, I've read that book many times. I've read everything that Louise has written. She's so amazing. Five Little Indians is a finalist for the 2021 Jim Diva Prize for Writing That Provokes and the 2021 Ethel Wilson Fiction Prize. Michelle starts our conversation by reading from the multi-award-winning book, Five Little Indians. So this uh, is a part of the book that happens, that takes place shortly after Lucy has her baby with Kenny, although Kenny isn't around and Clara has been supporting her through the process. So um, I'll just start there. Clara handed baby girl back to Lucy to nurse. With that dreamy nursing mother look all over her face, Lucy focused only on baby girl. I'm going to name her Kendra, Clara sighed. After that bastard, I love that bastard. What can I say? Clara sighed again and stood just as a crisply uniformed nurse strode into the room all business. Time for baby's bath demonstration. The nurse's voice was both cheerful and unmistakably instructing Clara to leave. She pulled the privacy curtain closed, the hooks clattering. Clara shrugged and rolled her eyes in Lucy's direction, then leaned in for a hug and kissed Kendra's sweet smelling head. I'll be back later. I'm gonna head to the Indian center for a bit. She smiled over her shoulder at Lucy, Mama Lucy, oblivious to all but learning umbilical care and how to cradle a baby's head above the bathwater. The next afternoon, Clara found Lucy in her room, sitting by the window, clinging to Kendra, her face streaked with partially dried tears. What's wrong? Don't cry after that, Kenny. He's not worth your tears, that one. Lucy swiped at her dripping nose with the back of her hand. It's not that. The welfare lady was here today. She said, I have to prove I'm a fit mother. What the hell? 
How does she even know who you are? Lucy just stared out the window, absently rocking Kendra, watching the cars like toys on the street below. Clara nudged her. Lucy, snap out of it. What did she say? Maybe the nurses called her. I don't know. Maybe they do that to all Indians. Lucy started counting out loud. Clara knew of her need to count and order everything when she was having a hard time, but had never seen her do it out loud. What if they take her? What if she ends up at the mission? Lucy's voice rose with panic. Clara reached for the baby. Lucy, get dressed. We're getting out of here. Lucy stood looking around the room, stunned. But they said I had to stay for five days. Lucy, move, get dressed. What if she comes back? Our grandmothers had babies in the bush. You'll live. She carefully placed Kendra in the base in the bassinet beside Lucy's bed. I'll be all right. Careful that no one was watching, Clara walked fast down the hall and slipped into the clearly marked supply room. She stuffed the small knapsack she used as a purse with all the baby supplies she could think Lucy would need and calmly walked back to Lucy's room, smiling at the nurse sitting behind the nurse's station. Hey, is it okay if I take my friend and baby out for a little air? The nurse nodded absently. Yes, that would be fine. Use the wheelchair just in case. Clara strolled into Lucy's room like nothing was wrong. She pulled her pack open for Lucy to see. She grinned. Indian school skills. As terrified as she was, it still made Lucy smile. Clara pulled the wheelchair from the corner and motioned for Lucy to sit in it. Just do it. She took the baby from the bassinet and placed her in Lucy's arms, then covered them with a blanket placing a hospital gown over Lucy's shoulders so as not to raise questions. Clara wheeled her right by the nurse's station, the nurse smiling at such an attentive friend, down in the elevator and out the front door and all the way home. An hour later, Clara had dumped the wheelchair blocks away and was helping Lucy calm an aggravated and hungry baby. What if they find us? Lucy gently rocked the baby, trying to calm her. They don't care enough. Lucy giggled just a little and placed Kendra in the cot, swaddled tightly and buttressed by the only two pillows in the apartment. Sometimes I just love how pissed off you always are. Clara rolled her eyes. And besides, I gave them a fake address when I signed you into the hospital. Why the hell did you do that? Just in case. They looked at Kendra. Kendra would not become a case. When she'd been forced to quit the nursing program, Lucy, Lucy was cut off the meager training allowance that paid the rent and little more. During her pregnancy, she had no choice but to leave the apartment above Chong Lee's and move her few things into Clara's tiny studio suite. Clara slept, slept on a mat on the floor, Lucy on the slightly more comfortable cot. Since getting fired from the Manitou, Clara had found her way into the black market salmon trade, acting as middlewoman between Indian fishers and white buyers. She didn't make much money, but sometimes if the buyer was stupid enough, as some were, she could grossly inflate the price and these occasional windfalls kept the wolf away from the door. There were other little perks that came with living under the radar. Someone at the Indian center told her she could get welfare, but that white lady with the long nose and that pinched look on her face was more than Clara would put up with. She'd rather make a buck this way or that. There would be no groveling. Even though the sun was only a little low on the horizon, the terrifying day took its toll. Lucy lay down next to Kendra and Clara fell asleep in the armchair before she even knew she was tired. 
All right. So I have, I have, so I was trying to distill all of the things I, I want to ask you and talk to you about this book because it's such a, such an incredible book. Um, but I guess the place I wanted to start was with the characters because they are just such, they're so remarkable and I just fell in love with them from the beginning. How did these characters start for you? Well, for me, when I, when I went to the MFA program at UBC, I went specifically to write this book, but I didn't know what it was going to look like. I didn't know if it was going to be creative nonfiction, if it was going to be a collection of short stories, it would be a novel. And it all started with one little tiny paragraph. We did an exercise in one of the workshops and uh, it was one little tiny paragraph and it was Kenny. And after that, I started developing Kenny's character and I knew right away that in order to accomplish what I needed to do, I would need more characters. And so in a way they evolved quite naturally, but I was also very almost scientific about the way I created them as well in that I, I looked at the kinds of injuries that I was inserting into their childhood, into their experiences at the residential school. And I looked at, I looked at the number or the, you know, those, those injuries and the kinds of impacts that they would experience in their development as a person because of those injuries and how that would shape their personalities and shape the challenges or create the challenges that they would have once out of the school and trying to make a life for themselves. So, so, you know, it was very sort of scientific in that way in terms of, you know, just, you know, assessing how those impacts would affect them. But having said that, they really came alive very quickly with their own personalities and their own attitudes and, you know, and their own responses to the world. And they felt a lot like my kids, let me say. I felt like they were my kids. How did I, you mentioned that when you started the program, you weren't sure if the book would become creative nonfiction or fiction or short stories. How did that journey shift? Because I always think fiction is such a powerful tool for teaching us things in a way that maybe other writing styles don't. But how did that happen for you? Well, I, I ultimately and fairly quickly, like in, you know, first couple of months I was in the program, I decided on fiction. And the reason for that is because you have such a greater latitude in terms of how you develop your plot, how you develop your characters in terms of, you know, creating the story and filling out the story than you do if you're tied to facts. Because with fiction, you know, the sky is the limit. The only thing you're limited by is your ability to imagine and your ability to have good ideas, (laughs) right? And uh, the fact that it's not uh, nonfiction doesn't mean it's not true. A thing need not be factual to be true. And uh, so basically that was why, because it gave me a greater latitude to, to present the story the way I felt it needed to be presented. The other um, thing I wanted to talk to you about, which probably ties a bit with my first question, was the braided structure of this book, which is, I mean, one of my most favorite um when I'm reading fiction, I just love having the characters move back and forth that way. And uh, I wanted to ask about that process for you and, and whether it was scientific in the way that you developed the characters or whether as the characters developed, you saw the way the, the threads would, would develop too. No, it, it started that way right from the beginning. Right from the beginning, it was, you know, I, I, I finished 
Kenny's chapter and went right into the next one and into the next character. And uh, the braided narrative, the first author that I ever read that used braided narrative was Louise Erdrich. And she's the undisputed queen of the braided narrative. She's so amazing at doing that. But what I really like about braided narrative is that it gives you this huge latitude. It gives you, a, uh, in terms of creating the world that they're in, it gives you forgiveness and it gives you, you know, depth and breadth as well, because you just end right there. You don't have to follow through day by day by day by day with a character. You can follow their story without it being every single day of their lives, right? As you go back and forth in time, you know, and I, I found that that really served this story. I'm not sure braided narrative serves every story, but it really was the right structure for this book. Yeah. It always like in the stories where it happens, it, it, like Louise, as you said, is just, you know, she works magic with it. And it felt like that with this too, where you would, you would drop the thread, so to speak, and it would just kind of pick up in the right spot with the next character. And it just has this beautiful kind of wave uh, that you're following the whole way through. And it's, it's beautiful to hear that that came so naturally from, from the writing. It did. And I mean, you know, there's a lot of work. You, you get that braided narrative down and then you have to go back and look, okay, am I consistent? (laughs) You know, have I got conflicts in terms of time and place? Have I got, you know, somebody doing something that really happened 10 years previous or something? I mean, there's there's a ton of work in terms of looking at making sure you've got the necessary continuity. So, yeah. Yeah. I wanted to ask about your journey as a writer, because as you mentioned in your introduction of yourself, you were a lawyer first, but were you always writing and, and what led you to sign up for your MFA? Well, I, I went to the MFA to write this book. That was the whole purpose of going to the MFA, even though I didn't really have it in my head what it was going to look like. It it was this book that motivated me to to go to that program but I was an activist before I was a lawyer. In fact, that was, I think, probably the the lengthiest um, portion of my career so far. But writing has been a part of all of that. And it's been a skill that I've honed through all of that work, you know, outside of, you know, technically creative writing, you know, because of course, as a lawyer, you write constantly. Um, different kind of writing, but still writing. And the whole point, again, is communicating and persuading, right? So, um, and also, you know, in my years working for various organizations, writing was always um, a pretty key aspect of it. Yeah. I remember you saying at the event that we did for the Writers' Fest, and I can't remember the exact context, but there was something you said about that at one point you weren't sure whether this book would be finished or that you questioned giving up on it. What was happening when, when you were thinking about that? Or, or am, I getting, am I getting the context wrong for that too? You can correct me. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was after it was finished, right? Okay. And we were, um, me and my wonderful editor, she's so fabulous. We were working away, it had already been accepted by... HarperCollins and we were working away on the edits and I I hit a point where I thought I don't want to do this (laughs) I don't want to put this out in the world right and uh, um, you know but that was just a really sort of 
personal kind of thing, you know, in the sense that, oh my goodness, everybody's going to be able to just walk into a bookstore and imagine that they know how I think, right? And I'm a, I'm a, I'm a hermit, right? Like I'm a very, very solitary private person. And, you know, to sort of, <laughs> you know, open the pages, so to speak, was uh, suddenly terrifying. But, um, but yeah, obviously I got past it. Yeah. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. yeah. In tying into that, like, I often, I've often asked writers, like, how, how it feels when, because we write work and it's this very private and solitary thing. But then when you publish work, it's a very, it takes on a whole life of its own that suddenly we as writers have very little control over. And I'm wondering what that's been like for you, especially, I mean, in the last three or four months with the, you know, news that it's going to be a TV show and the Amazon first uh, novel prize and two nominations for the BC Book Awards and the Giller Prize. And I could, I'm probably missing some, but you know, what is it, what's it been like for you to watch this? The Governor General's Award and the Amazon Award, they, they um, were announced within days, literally days of each other, I think four days. And I was just... <laughs> I was just flabbergasted by it. And, you know, but, you know, the the importance of those kinds of awards to me, uh, I mean, obviously it's lovely to have, you know, professional literary people read your work and say, wow, this is great. You know, this is really good. That's great. Um, but more importantly, every time there's a nomination or a win or whatever, it elevates the book in the public eye again and more and more people are picking it up and reading it and that to me just means the opportunity to persuade more hearts and minds to look at this in a in a, from a different perspective and how do you feel about it becoming a tv show how do <laughs> I, I, I i would imagine that would be strange because now these characters that you imagine will you'll be able to see them on a tv screen yeah well you know that's um that's we actually had penned the deal and signed off on the deal in April. Okay. Um, but we decided to just wait for some of the outcome of these awards and before we announced it. To me, it's really great. I'm really excited about it and I don't feel any kind of possessiveness about it, right? Um, mainly because I've got a consulting producer role. So <laughs> I will have input in the in the development of the screenplay and the scripts and such, which is great. But, you know, my son um suffered from dyslexia and it was just heartbreaking to me that he would never develop a love of reading because it was painful for him to read uh and so i think about all the other people that for either preference or ability struggle with reading and that this is an opportunity to bring the story to a much broader audience and that's really exciting so that's good yeah yeah yeah, it's exciting. Like you, you were speaking about the changing hearts and minds. It's the more opportunities that this story has to be kind of taken in different mediums, the more people will will read it and understand and absorb, right? And also, more people will read it too. You know, I've gone to, you know, I've seen movies that I see. Oh, that was based on a book, and I'll go and grab a book and read it. And you know, so yeah, and you know, especially when we think about the real impacts of this that continue to reverberate in our world now, it's not history, um, the more people that are able to 
we consider their thoughts about this, the better we will all be. Yeah. And I wanted to actually ask you about the themes in the book, because obviously the book's about residential school and genocide and the violence against Indigenous people in this country. And But it's also, there's so much hope and resilience and joy in this book, too. And I wondered how you balance those, uh, those having those themes, those realities of this country with also those themes that are so important, too. Well, you know, my mother was a residential school survivor, and she was one of the most joyful people I've ever known. And, uh, you know, and we have to, these are not cardboard cutouts of, of stereotypes of survivors. These are people. And, you know, I, I was speaking with someone, I can't remember who now, and they asked a similar question about, you know, that there are these themes that are hopeful. And, and I said, well, and I, and I believe it firmly is that no matter how difficult something is, that there's always the opportunity for joy and for hope. And that those are the things that that inspire us to survive, right? To to reach for something that may, you know, act as an antidote to all the ugliness. And I also felt that, you know, to make um, to make it really reflective of human characteristics, if you will, you know, that's that's one of our <laughs> one of our reasons that we survive. We're so weak and puny on the earth, right? But our ability to adapt and our ability to move forward in spite of these things is is what has made us, you know, so-called successful as a species. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you see it so much in, in books. You know, I've read other nonfiction books too, where they'll be very dark and heavy topics, but there's humor in there because we do that, right? You know, you laugh, you, the awkward laughter at, in dark moments because we can't help but somehow inject a little bit of joy because we need it. Well, in humor, there had to be humor in the book because we're the funniest people on earth. <laughs> you know, and it's also, you know, a, a decolonizing tool, you know, that we can look at the circumstance that we're dealing with and find what's funny in it and, you know, bizarre and laughable. And, you know, and that helps us to, to <laughs> I, I just love it, but it helps us to survive and thrive. Yeah. Well, Claire, in that little bit that you read, we saw just how, you know, Claire's got such a great sense of humor and silliness and spunk is she's just one of my favorite characters in the book, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. She's, uh, she's unique. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I'm so interested in this idea of emerging writers, which is something that's been discussed in the last year. What a narrow perspective we had of that term. I wondered if you could talk about how you feel about being an emerging writer and what what you think needs to change about that term. Well, I think that what needs to change is that we all emerge at, you know, the time in our life when we're ready to do that. And, you know, I don't think I could have written this book 10, 20 years ago, this was the time for me to do this. And, you know, the fact that we are emerging should not be considered or should not be conflated with our age, (laughs) right? Because we all emerge when we're ready to do so. Some younger, some older. I've been busy. What can I say? (laughs) But, you know, it's true. It is conflated with age very often. You know, some of the some of the awards for emerging writers are age restricted. 
you know, like under 30 and that kind of thing, right? You know, it, it, it limits that there are some people that are that are committed to a lifelong learning and growing process that are going to emerge when they're in their silver years, so to speak. Yeah. yeah. Well, it was something I remember talking to uh, Yonina Curtin about recently and, and just how, like, like you said, you know, people emerge at different times and you've been busy and Yonina's been busy and it, you know, you've been gathering all these things that go into the books that you, you're putting out. And if you weren't busy doing all those things, your books would probably be very different. Absolutely. And, you know, and we bring a, we bring a certain maturity that we wouldn't have brought to something if we'd written it, you know, decades ago. Yeah. Yeah. So is there going to be, are you working on another novel or are you just settling into your producer roles now? (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah. Consulting producer. It's a limited (laughs) role, let me say. No, I, I am working on another, well, I shouldn't say I'm working on it. I've got some chapters in the can, but you know, with media and stuff that's been going on with this book, it's been challenging to sort of maintain my writing schedule. But uh, but yeah, there is a second book. It's also historical fiction. Um, it goes back further in time. It, it starts with the birth year of my great-grandmother, which is 1856. I was born in 1956, which I think is a lovely kind of circle, right? And what it's doing, I mean, that was a very, very critical time in the history of clearing the plains in what was the Northwest Territories that is now Alberta, Saskatchewan, some of Manitoba, and so on. And my great-grandmother, and it's loosely based on her, it's not a dedicated account of her life, but she didn't even see a non-Indigenous person until she was in her late teens. And so in her, or the character based on her, I have somebody that has essentially lived a non-colonized life for the, all of the major development, developmental aspects or periods of her life. And, you know, she's a grown adult before she's suddenly faced with militaristic and, and legal, I guess, uh, imposition of, of colonialism. And so I want to tell the story of clearing the plains from that perspective, the perspective of an Indigenous woman who all of this was a terrible surprise to. (laughs) So that's, yeah, so just in sort of general terms, that's that's what it's about. You know, this is my, uh, my, my real objective in life. I've seen the suffering and experienced it myself. And people just need to stop thinking that this is something that is relegated to the ancient past and that, you know, it's just some flaw in us as Indigenous people that, that we're still experiencing the impact. So that's what the success of this book means, means to me. Thanks so much to Michelle for being on Writing the Coast. And thanks to you for listening and subscribing. If you would like to learn more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, you should go to our website, bcyukonbookprizes.com. On our website, you'll find all sorts of useful information, like details about our finalists, as well as information about our upcoming events. Next time on Writing the Coast, you'll hear my conversation with Linda Bailey, whose book, Princesses vs. Dinosaurs, is a finalist for the 2021 Christy Harris Illustrated Children's Literature Prize. 
Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.